0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll to examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a gun massacre on Independence Day in which a young man armed with an arsenal of assault rifles and pistols shot over 70 rounds into a 4th of July parade, killing six and wounding 30. Joining us to discuss possible motives for this latest gun murder spree, political or otherwise, is Jared Holt a resident fellow at the Atlantic Council Digital Forensic Research Lab who previously tracked and provided analysis on fringe media for Media Matters for America. He specializes in alt-right and so-called new-right media in addition to the larger culture and influence of right-wing social media and he has studied the violent and macabre online postings by the shooter who is in custody. Then we'll look into the latest polling indicating the Republican red wave may not sweep over the Democrats in November, and that the Democrats could not only hold the Senate, but pick up as many as four new Senate seats. Joining us is Simon Rosenberg, the president and founder of the New Democrat Network, a leading progressive think tank and advocacy organization. Previously, he was a writer and producer at ABC News for five years, before working on the Dukakis and Clinton presidential campaigns where he was a member of the 1992 Clinton War Room. We will discuss his new report at the New Democrat Network, Red Wave, Hard to See One Now. Then finally, with the Supreme Court deciding to take up the North Carolina case of Moore v. Harper that could give Republican state legislatures unfettered control over federal elections administration and nullify court challenges... We will speak with Helen White, a counsel at Protect Democracy, on their elections and voting rights team. We will discuss her article at Just Security, The Independent State Legislature Theory Should Horrify Supreme Court Originalists. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising, relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org/slash/donate, or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org, where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Jared Holt, who's a resident fellow at the Atlantic Council Digital Forensic Research Lab, who previously tracked and provided analysis on fringe media for Media Matters for America. He specializes in alt-right and so-called new-right media, in addition to the larger culture and influence of right-wing social media. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jared Holt.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Jared. And it's not clear that this shooter in Highland Park, Illinois, it's fairly affluent suburb of Chicago. He doesn't look like a right winger. He just seems sort of apolitical and out to lunch. What do you know about him?
1: Yeah, so we've been uh, going through some of what he left behind online at DFR lab, of course, you know, also trying to remember that what we are finding since his attack is what he wanted to be found after the attack, right? So all of it has to be taken with a grain of salt. Um, but you know, as more has come out, as we've learned more, uh, we haven't really seen anything that would lead us to believe at this point that the attack was politically motivated um you know uh, some photos and reports of him being at some stop the steal and trump events have gone around but I, I would caution listeners that you know doing something awful and also having those beliefs doesn't necessarily mean you did something awful because of those beliefs um i you know there could be a case that you know abstractly in some way this you know influenced him Uh, you know, subconsciously or culturally or what may have it. Uh, But things really kind of point more in a direction of an individual who was, you know, uh, apparently deeply troubled, uh, obsessed with violence and gore, and, uh, you know, seemed almost delusional to some degree, uh, thinking that committing an act of mass violence might have been something that he felt he had to do.
0: Well, it's a case of of sort of get a life, isn't it? If you spend your time in front of the computer and your only outlet for your so-called talent is YouTube videos. I mean, that was his world, wasn't it? A wannabe rapper?
1: Yeah, and. Uh, you know, looking through a discord server that he had and some of what was left there, uh, it, it seemed like he was part of this like really fringe kind of online community, um, you know, something that uh, very uh, <laughs> impolitely calls itself schizocore or you know it kind of this fetis- fetishization, excuse me, of of violence, of, you know, just being as outrageous as possible. And that, exi- you know, that kind of sentiment, that kind of expression exists in several different places online. And, you know, I, I think a lot of younger people end up drawn to it, um, you know, whether that is out of a fear of, or, or a feeling of hopelessness or a feeling of despair about the future. Uh, You know, whatever it may be, it kind of brings them into these communities and, you know, from there, their feeling of social responsibility, their feeling of belonging, of, uh, you know, wanting to contribute positively to the world can, you know, very quickly erode and, you know, somebody, you you know, when that attitude gets into the wrong person, it, it can result in violence like what we saw.
0: Well, he apparently fired an awful lot of shots and wounded 30 people killed six and again this is his community his father and his uncle apparently have a a popular delicatessen and they're very apparently well known and well liked in the community so he's shooting his own neighbors isn't he
1: yeah yeah and this parade that he shot up also has some cultural significance in Highland Park. Um I live not too far from there these days and you know this is the type of event that if you talk to people who grew up there uh, many of them, you know, would decorate their bikes as kids and participate in this parade in some shape or form. The school marching band gets in on it. Like everyone in town kind of gathers around and this is like a big community moment. So You know, his choice of that parade, uh, you know, kind of carries an additional local community element to it uh, that makes it all the more traumatizing for uh, the residents of Highland Park and the other northern suburbs of Chicago.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Jared Holt, who's a resident fellow at the Atlantic Council Digital Forensics Research Lab, who previously tracked and provided analysis on French media for Media Matters for America he specializes in alt right and so-called new right media in addition to the larger culture and influence of right-wing social media so apparently he was what he was on the roof of a building on the corner with a really a close aim at the parade as it came towards him and he apparently escaped by blending into the crowd dressed in women's clothes he had tattoos on his face including one relating to his rapper name. I don't know whether he covered that up with makeup or something, but he apparently escaped by foot and then took his mother's car where his guns have been found. Apparently he had an awful lot of guns as well. But the thing that I keep reading in these, you know, trying to catch up on as much information about him as I can, Jared, they keep telling you that he bought... (laughs) all of his guns were legally purchased as though that's some kind of an excuse I mean what kind of world do we live in
1: yeah it's it just seems absurd and it seems that every time some kind of tragedy like this happens more often than not these days we're learning that these high-powered rifles all of this ammunition you know all of this was purchased legally um, which I think is you know, maybe more of a a commentary on the conditions of society rather than the individual themselves. Of of course, the individual ultimately is to blame for that act of violence. But the fact that the conditions exist that make it uh, seemingly as, uh, you know, maybe easy is not the right word, but, uh, you know, not terribly difficult to acquire high power rifles uh, and, and carry out something like this, I think should, uh, inspire a moment of reflection, uh, for Americans. But I, I guess I fear that it may not as it has not in the past.
0: And Jared Holt, you say you were, you live nearby. How far are you from Highland Park?
1: Uh, I I'm in Chicago currently, so it's like a 30 minute drive, uh, if there's no traffic in the middle of the night uh so but uh my fiance and uh, her family grew up in the area so I do have some some family or i guess growing family ties to the area and you know yesterday as we were watching everything play out uh, they were able to fill me in on some of the more communal aspects of this
0: and is it as I described a relatively Affluent neighborhood.
1: Yeah, it is. It's uh, relatively affluent. It also has a really large Jewish population.
0: But there's no hint of anti-Semitic motives on the part of this Robert Cremo the third, this 21 year old, who killed uh, six people and sh- wounded 30 and fired over 70 rounds.
1: No, there's not uh, evidence of that to begin with. But uh, you know, I mention that because yesterday as the news was playing out as the suspect uh had yet to be caught a a lot of people in that community were particularly terrified and i think to some degree continue to be terrified about you know what they might find out about that mass shooting about his beliefs um because you know we are just as we're recording this just barely 24 hours out from this event i'm sure that you know especially since they Ah, uh, we're able to capture him alive and prosecutors do their investigating uh, that will learn more about what the motivations here may have been uh, and and sort of the context around it that uh, led to this tragedy.
0: But there does seem to be a kind of common thread here with the shooter in Buffalo, New York, and this character and even the shooter in New Texas. I mean, this guy's 21, but they were both 18. But they do seem to sort of spend a lot of time in their rooms in front of a TV screen looking into the dark portals of the web. That seems to be a common theme, isn't
1: it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're all united in this nihilism, and from what we can tell, those... Uh, folks who were arrested for those killings and claimed credit for those killings, you know, were engaged in parts of the Internet that, you know, really turned that nihilism and cynicism into something a lot more sinister. Um, in And it's, you know, kind of a, a flourishing fringe. And I think it would kind of, you know, behoove us to try to wrap our head around that. Because, you know, now that we've had a few instances of, uh, peeling off of that, it, it's very likely that the way these shootings, uh, these mass shootings take place, uh, may start to look a little bit different as internet culture evolves and fractures.
0: But what does it say about parenting here in these cases, particularly with the 18, 18 year olds? I know the Uvalde shooters' parents, I think the mother had drug addiction problems. But the parents of the of the shooter in Buffalo, they were very local progressive activists. Were they blind to the fact that their sons are buying guns and assault rifles and and lots of ammunition? And, the, and in the case of this character, Krimo the the third, he bought a whole bunch of guns and pistols. His parents must have known this, or I mean, the guy lived on their property. Apparently, he had lived in an apartment on their property. I just don't understand why parents don't understand when kids have arsenals that there's a problem.
1: Yeah, yeah I mean, one would think so, right? Um, it, it, it's hard to know what was going through the heads of those parents, what they saw and ignored, what the you know these young guys were able to successfully hide from their parents uh, too. But it, it's certainly, I think, a question that deserve some answers.
0: So the stuff that's online and about him watching a Trump motorcade and another apparently wrapped in a Trump flag, you're looking into the veracity of those images. I mean, how, would they be faked? I don't know how you would fake images like that. So at the press conference, the local officials say he was apolitical. The police do. So it's not exactly being apolitical if you have pictures of yourself wrapped in a Trump flag.
1: Yeah, I I think when they use the term apolitical, they were describing uh, you know motivation for the attack. Um, it did seem like uh, this individual was engaged in you know support for Trump. There, there's a couple photos of him. There's one of him wrapped in the Trump flag. There was that video uh, that he uh, took as Trump's motorcade went by and he was photographed at a couple different stop the steel events. Right. But as far as we know right now, that support for Trump doesn't seem to have directly motivated his decision to commit this mass shooting. Uh, in fact, the, a, a reason for him doing it is not abundantly clear at this point. Um, it, it can be a bit murky, but I think it, you know, as far as stockpiling guns, these weird parts of the Internet, I, I definitely think that there is at least some degree of, uh, you know, cultural context around it that that might offer. But I, I again, I would caution against rush rushing to judgment on that or thinking that, uh, you know, that stuff on its own uh, is strong enough to support an assertion that this was a politically motivated act of domestic terrorism.
0: Well, it sounds from what we have learning about him is that his career, if you could call it that, as a YouTube rapper in this kind of small world of wannabe rappers who publish on YouTube and uh, on Spotify, that he may have had some modest success a few years ago, but his profile was waning amongst that weird coterie of uh, people I mean the whole thing about you know YouTube and internet influencers my god you know that's the new vocation for the 21st century to be I want to be an influencer I don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer I want to be an influencer Uh, I find all of this internet culture just so depressing
1: yeah you're not alone in that Um, (laughs) I also find it uh, quite depressing but yeah the the cultural landscape is changing more value uh, in younger generations being attributed to online presence. Um, And as far as his content uh, that, you know, was shared on YouTube discord uh, you know, a variety of different sources and platforms. One of the kind of outstanding mysteries or, or questions that I have is a lot of this content from what I can tell uh, was created or uploaded at in like October last year. Um there didn't seem to be a whole lot of activity from this guy uh between that time period and uh you know last weekend. So it's yeah I don't there, there's a lot more to learn here um and it's something that uh you know I'm going to continue to try to keep an eye on because this case is pretty unusual as far as these things go um, in in sort of the format of it. Uh, So it's definitely going to be of interest and I'm sure that as time goes on we're going to be learning more about it.
0: And that's the work that you do, right? Yeah. Digital forensics. So rotten job, but somebody has to do it, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah, somebody's got to do it. And, uh, you know, you talked about sort of These trends in online spaces, um, you know, unfortunately, it's a job that, you know, is just becoming more and more important.
0: Well, Jared Holt, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Jared Holt, who is a resident fellow at the Atlantic Council Digital Forensics Research Lab, who previously tracked and provided analysis on fringe media for Media Matters for America, and he specializes in alt-right and so-called new-right media, in addition to the larger culture and influence of right-wing social media. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the latest polling indicating the Republican red wave may not sweep over the Democrats in November and that the Democrats could not only hold the Senate, but pick up as many as four new Senate seats. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Simon Rosenberg, the president and founder of the New Democrat Network, a leading progressive think tank and advocacy organization. Previously, he was a writer and producer at ABC News for five years before working on the Dukakis and Clinton presidential campaigns, where he was a member of the 1992 Clinton War Room. And he has a new report at New Democrat Network. Red Wave, Hard to See One Now. Welcome to Background Briefing, Simon
2: Rosenberg. Great to be here, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And I'm hearing more and more as these dreadful reactionary rulings come from the Supreme Court. And we have already a built-in counter-majoritarian Senate, Electoral College, etc. I think the Democrats routinely have to win something like 8% more votes than the Republicans just to break even. So the decks are stacked but lately the message I'm hearing is there's a way out and it's pretty simple and that is for the Democrats to get 60 Senate seats so
2: is that possible Well let me just talk about what I think is happening in the election first and um because I think this is important there's a, been a lot of new data since the end of row on the 24th of June And what we've seen is, you know, there's been significant movement towards the Democrats in what's called the congressional generic. Um, You know, the Marist poll had us moving 10 points, the Monmouth poll, five points, this uh, polling firm called Big Village had it three, Yahoo, YouGov, three, Politico, Morning Consult, three. And what that means is that the election today is you know, three to four to five points more democratic than it was two weeks ago. And even then, I did a whole analysis that you mentioned prior to Roe ending that suggested that the, there was no real evidence of a red wave, that when you went into the Senate and gubernatorial polls all around the country, that Democrats were actually doing much better than was the conventional wisdom. And so, I have been an optimist about this election. I've always believed that the anti-MAGA majority that voted twice against the Republicans in record numbers by an average of six and a half points in the last two elections was going to show up again because they doubled down on MAGA. They didn't run away from it. And and I think these voters were going to be reminded about what scared them so much in the last two elections. And I think if the last few weeks has done that. I think the idea of 10-year-old kids you know, being forced to have babies and the kind of persistent mass shootings that we're seeing, the January 6th revelations. The Republican Party is an ugly offering now, and it is impossible to look away. And so I think what we're seeing now is a very competitive election. I think if the election were held today, the Senate would stay Democratic. We'd pick up a seat or two. I think we can get into details on that. And I think the House, I think we will come to know in the next few weeks that the House is now much more competitive that it was. What we need to do is to keep the House. We pick up two Senate seats. We can potentially, you know, get rid of the filibuster and move ahead in codifying Roe and taking other steps next year. I think that's the I think Democrats now should be on the offense and fighting to win, not fighting just to prevent losses. And that's a big mindset change I think that has to happen inside the family.
0: But when you say that, Simon, doesn't that mean that the the rallying cry should be a target. In other words, 60 seats in the Senate. I mean, let's set a target. Let's set a goal as as opposed to saying we're not going to do it badly and we may even do well.
2: I agree with you. Whatever that target is, I, I just personally don't think we're going to get to 60 this cycle. But I do think that we can get to 52 or even 53. And that means that Mansion and cinema are not in charge of deciding what happens to the fate of the filibuster. If these new senators that come in, if we can just get 50 to agree to go around the filibuster on some things that involve constitutional issues, which is sort of the thing that's being talked about, voting rights, anything to do with voting, the elections, you know, Roe v. Wade, these constitutional matters been decided by the court, we can do a carve out for those things, potentially, even with, you know, just picking up two Senate seats. And so I don't know that we have to get all the way to 60. I think there's a, a world that we could see that where Democrats are responding with the urgency that's in front of us and to to and to and get in front of these dangerous things that the Republicans are doing that the country just simply doesn't support. I mean, we have, you used the word counter-majoritarian. I, I, don't, I just don't, I think we are, I, I think what's so remarkable about the moment is that Republicans are acting as if they don't really, believe that doing things that are unpopular matter because it's they are beginning to construct a politics we're losing elections, where they're going to insulate themselves from losing elections. And I think that, you know, I think this, I believe this city in Washington where I live, which has been reticent and kind of sleepy on these issues of the radicalization of the Republican Party, I think has woken up in the last few weeks and I'm optimistic that we're gonna see a new approach and a new day. I'll give you an example of that. You're a governor, right? Gavin Newsom, the ad that he put on the air this weekend in Florida challenging DeSantis was a great argument about freedom. I love the frame that he used. It was exactly the way that we need to be speaking. I think you're seeing a slumbering, scared, beaten down party wake up now and realize the stakes of this election And I think we've got to help. We've got to lead now. And we've got to ask our partners around the country to overcome their own disappointments, their own frustrations that they all have, which we all have, and recognize that we, you know, we got to suit the anti-MAGA majority that participated so heavily in the last two elections. We got to show up again and we got to leave it all on the playing field.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Simon Rosenberg, the president and founder of the New Democrat Network, a leading progressive think tank and advocacy organization. Previously, he was a writer and producer at ABC News for five years before working on the Dukakis and Clinton presidential campaigns where he was a member of the 1992 Clinton War Room. And he has a report at the New Democrat Network, Red Wave, hard to see one now. Well, there's some polls indicating that Some of the Democratic senators, particularly Raphael Warnock, who was very endangered, um, the latest Quinnipiac poll has him 10 points ahead of Herschel Walker, 54 to 44. So let's walk through some of the the Democrats that are holding their seats and how they're doing.
2: Let me say that there are four seats that we hold that we're defending. and, um, And we are not behind in any of these races right now. And that's critical to understand. If there was a wave, we would be behind. We'd be either even or behind in all these races. We're not behind in any of them. And that's using poll averages, but it's also just using recent polling, right? Since the election, I think really began to change in May with the Uvalde shooting. I think things. There was evidence that things that voters were beginning to wake up and pay more attention, right? And so what you've seen is that in uh, in Nevada, the in the only public poll taken um, in since in the last few weeks, Cortez Masto is up three. In a new future majority poll in Arizona, which is the only one we have in the last few weeks, uh, he's up seven to eight points against his two opponents. In New Hampshire, Maggie Hassan, in the new future majority poll that came out that Joe Scarborough referenced uh, over the weekend, uh, Maggie Hassan was up nine. And in Georgia. Warnock has been up now in several of the polls. Other polls have had it much closer. But I think that there's a general view in the Republican Party, and you've seen Republicans quoted saying this, that they don't think Walker's going to be able to make it to the end, that he's just too damaged and too bad a candidate. And then in terms of offense, winning seats, right? There's the Pennsylvania. Fetterman is in every poll taken. There's been four polls taken. Uh, He's up between five and eight or nine points in every single poll. I think he's in a he's in a commanding lead in that state. If his health holds, we should pick up Pennsylvania. So now we're up one, right? Now we're not we're not only keeping the Senate, we're winning. And Ron Johnson had a catastrophic poll uh, in uh, before before even Roe ended, um, on the twenty-second of June, uh, showing him behind the three of his four Democratic opponents and down in the low to mid forties. That's the kind of poll that Senators lose, and and it was a losing poll for him. It was a if, if it's the normal election cycle, Johnson loses. So we could easily right now pick up two seats. I also think North Carolina. All the polling there has been within margin of error. I think that's a state that was sort of been overlooked. And the only poll that's been taken in Ohio in in the last few weeks actually had us up by three points over JD Vance, and so. I think there's reason to believe that things are better in the Senate than people understood. And even, um, you know, five thirty-eight, Nate Silver last week released their model for the election, had the Senate as a as a toss up. I actually think it's not a toss up. I think if the election were held today, we would keep the Senate. And I'm very optimistic about the Senate. The House, we just don't have as much data. And I think the House House races in general can be. Um, pushed around more by national events. And if, if the electorate really has shifted three to five points, which is what I think has happened, uh, then in blue and purple states, you know, we have candidates that were in trouble that are now ahead, and we have candidates who are behind who are now even. Um, and I think, the, I think the House is going to be very, very competitive. And so I'm very optimistic about what I'm seeing. I mean, I've been on both sides of a wave. This is my uh 17th electoral cycle as a democrat working on these issues it's hard to believe and i this is not a wave election against us it just isn't it's not comporting to those the way that you see waves evolve and so i hope that for everyone listening they recognize that now we're playing offense here we're not playing defense we can actually pick up seats in the senate we can keep the house we can keep some of our most important governors And we can go, you know, we can let the country know the country can take a look at this ugly offering that the Republicans have given all of us and reject it as we did the last two times. That's the most important thing we can do right now to make sure that the Republicans understand that they've overreached and the country is rejecting this kind of new radical MAGA that we're seeing come out of the Republican Party.
0: So you mentioned Peter Thiel's candidate in Ohio, J.D. Vance. What about the other Peter Thiel candidate Blake Masters, no relationship in Arizona. How's he doing?
2: So the good news is in the, it was interesting in the poll uh, in Arizona, the future majority did, and it was a large poll, 700 sample. They did it after. It's the only statewide poll done since Roe ended. Kelly was beating Masters by nine and the other candidate by six. And so um, there's clearly an understanding in the Arizona electorate about the differences between those two candidates, right? That was... And so we're, he's, Kelly's further ahead against Masters. Kelly, I think, is in a very strong position. And look, the truth is all of our candidates are good candidates, right? They're all good candidates. Um, The Republicans in the Senate in particular are running a lot of, you know, some of the worst candidates that you and I have ever seen, Ian. I mean, Herschel Walker, Mehmet Oz are two of the worst major party candidates that we've ever seen in our lifetime of studying these things. And, And I think that I would argue that JD Vance is uh, an untested and an unknown candidate who barely survived a very contentious primary, and I think you know that I think that race can end up being more competitive than people understand. Remember, Ohio has one of the strong, most restrictive uh, abortion laws in the country—six weeks, and no exception for rape and incest—and I just keep wondering what's going to happen when all these students go back to Ohio State and and other universities in Ohio in the fall and the kind of reaction that you're gonna see on these college campuses to their lives uh, being radically altered. I I think that you're gonna have, I think young people are gonna be very noisy uh, this fall. I think there have been three Supreme Court decisions that directly speak to them uh, in the last few weeks. The gun decision to make open carry now universal. Uh, the climate decision, which was very significant, and also obviously Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade has more of an, you know, the people who are more impacted by these abortion, abortion restrictions are young people, right? And so the life of young people has been dramatically altered. Why does that matter? The biggest, the most democratic part of our coalition and the least likely to vote, or one of the most democratic parts of our coalition, and the one most, the least likely to vote are young people. If young people are woken up by the events of the last few weeks, it could have a dramatic impact on the election. And I think you're beginning to see that in some of the new polling. So
0: just in the last couple of minutes, just let's just add this up. If the Democrats can pick up, hold their seats, right, and then pick up Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Ohio, and Arizona. Arizona's a,
2: a hold that we have. sorry, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah,
0: <clears throat> I forgot about that, yeah, so... One, two, three, four. They could pick up four, right?
2: Yeah. And if you're a betting man, let's say we pick up two or even if we pick up zero, we still control the Senate. Right. Which means that, you know, we can we can continue to put in our judges and Biden can have staff. And if something were to happen to any of the Supreme Court Members, there would we'd be able to, you know. So holding the Senate is very consequential, right? Right, but and,
0: overcoming overcoming mansion and cinema is also
2: important. Which is why what Joe Biden needs to say is, "You give me two new senators, you give me the House. We're going to codify Roe v. Wade and take some other critical steps." I hope that's where we are within a few weeks, um, and and I think it certainly would be a rallying cry, I think, for Democrats.
0: And what's the way to motivate the congressional districts in terms of the House? Because you're obviously up against history and convention, et cetera. You mentioned them inspiring the young people in these red states that have lots of colleges. Is there a way to defy history here with the House? The Senate looks good, as we as you've, you've made a very clear case that the Senate for the Democrats is looking good. Just give us, a, in the last few minutes, a, a sense of how... The Democrats could defy history in the House.
2: We have to do two things. I mean, we've got to get our favorables up. People have to have a better sense of of that. We've made things better since we've been in power. And I think there's room for growth there. And then the other thing we have to do in each of these races is we have to indict each Republican as a MAGA extremist. And the good news is that is that many of them have given us more material to describe them as being out of the mainstream than any than in any election I've ever been part of. And so I think the things that we have to do to make the House competitive are within our power to do, right? These are not things that are outside of our capacity. I think these are things that are, it doesn't mean we'll get it done. It doesn't mean we'll get it done in every race. But I, I think this election, um, you know, I think we got a little bit of a wind at our back now. It's under tragic circumstances, and I wish it wouldn't have happened. But I think that it is the ugliness of the Republican Party now and what it's become is not something that you can wish away any longer. Nobody can. It's the biggest issue in the election. It's bigger than inflation. It's bigger than disappointment in Joe Biden. There are factors at play here that are bigger than than the things that were driving the election just a few weeks ago. And frankly, it's the thing that drove the last two elections. So it shouldn't be a huge surprise to anybody. I mean, there is baked in the cake this incredible opposition and fear of MAGA. It more people have voted against MAGA than any political movement in American history. And so there's there I think political commentators in their analyzing these this election really spent too much time dwelling on Biden's low approval rating. And I'll and I'll give you an example of this Ian. We all know people that are gonna that are disappointed in Joe Biden, but are still gonna vote straight party line Democrat, right? That's not a big leap, (laughs) particularly if you voted against the Republicans the last two elections. And so I think this idea that there was this direct line between Biden's approval rating and how Democrats were going to perform was not true in this election. It may have been true in other elections, but there were other countervailing circumstances because every election is unique and the countervailing circumstances is that in the last two elections, a record number of people voted against MAGA and the Republicans ran into that politics and didn't run away from it. And that meant that they were always going to have a low ceiling. What I've been saying for a year is the Republicans now are going to have a low ceiling. The question is, was that ceiling 47 or is it 49 or 51? But I never believed that they were going to be able to, that that there was going to be a wave against us The cycle. I thought they would stumble across the finish line because they had not given voters enough to vote for right there was no affirmative agenda that if you're disappointed in the democrats well i'm going to run over to these guys these guys look scary so you know i voted for these democrats the last two times they're giving us decent candidates i'll stick with them right I, I i just don't think the physics of that is complicated right that's what i just described is is how i think a lot of people are going to end up in this election and so i i'm i'm optimistic but i think we have to get more positive we have to you know dust ourselves off Put away all of our disappointments and frustrations and go leave it all on the playing field in this election.
0: Well, just in closing, I don't know whether you watched the recent Republican congressional debate in Wyoming, which has one seat held by Liz Cheney, who was a target of the Republicans. You talk about the ugliness of the Republicans. It was frightening. It wasn't so much ugly as, as deeply depressing and scary because it made you think— my God, has the United States become an idiocracy? These candidates were QAnon lunatics, types inarticulate, incapable of even even putting a sentence together, let alone a policy. It was frightening, and it turns out that Liz Cheney is thirty points behind.
2: Yeah, look, we there should be no illusion here. As much as I'm trying to be optimistic, right? The the the. The battle in front of us is a significant one, right? And, or the, the war, I don't want to use war language, right? But I mean, the struggles, the battles, the elections in front of us are, are, we, we, are we are in good shape in this election. I think we're, we're in much better shape. We still have to go win this thing and do what we got to do. But, you know, there one of our two political parties has become unhinged and, I just think we have to get more honest about talking about it in plain simple language, right? I mean, we can love the sinner and hate the sin. I mean, we we have to we have been cowardly as Democrats, I think, in not being more honest with our with the electorate about something that is is like the sky is blue, right? You know, it's an it's clearly evident. listen to I mean, the person who probably does a better job at explaining what's happened to the Republican Party is Liz Cheney herself, right? And and I think that the notion that, you know, this is just the old Republican Party, and if you don't like Democrats, you can vote Republican, that's just not where we are as a country. And, and people, by the way, in polling, right, don't see the Republicans as a radicalized force. This is not information that we have to provide to people. They already know this, right? And I do think, I will say this, and this is the prediction I'll make today, I think the electoral environment is going to get much worse for the Republicans. I think when average everyday people come to understand what these abortion restrictions really mean, you know, whether it's a 10-year-old being forced to come to term or doctors not being able to treat women uh, who are having a miscarriage and who could end up dying, this kind of uh, just radicalism or or pursuing women out of state or pursuing family members who've enabled a woman to leave a state – something like literally out of Handmaid's Tale, right? I think when people come to realize uh, how crazy these laws are, you know, not just the restriction itself, but the restriction on speech, the restriction on physical movement, right? I think this is, I think when there's a broader understanding of that, um, and we're also now having a broader understanding of what happens when you have this permissive attitude towards guns, is that I think that that this electoral environment could actually get much worse for the Republicans and deservedly so. What they've done, what the court has done and what individual Republican parties in various states have done uh, are deserving of approbation by the voters. And I'll end with this last point. The third piece of that is January 6th committee, which I know you talk about a lot, Ian, is that um, we're now looking at a conspiracy of hundreds of Republican political leaders from all across the country who have conspired to overturn an election. It's a criminal conspiracy. And we know now that it involves people like Lindsey Graham and Senator Ron Johnson in Wisconsin. And we know that party leaders and, you know, the GOP chairman in Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia were all subpoenaed two weeks ago. Um, And you're now looking at, you know, what is the greatest political scandal in American history that could involve the indictment uh, of hundreds of Republican leaders I think that too is going to become more apparent to voters between now and November. The gravity of this of, of what's happening with the January Sixth Committee. It's the greatest scandal in American history with no near peer. And and I think it's good it could cause damage to the Republican brand for a generation when people really come to understand what happened. It wasn't just Donald Trump. It was Ronald Romney, McDaniel, and the RNC. It was the state parties in Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Georgia. I mean, it was a it was senators, it was House members. It's a the scale and scope of this is unbelievable, and I think that we are going to be able. Each one of these things makes it easier for us to explain the other one to voters, right? You know, if you're if you're capable of overturning an election, then you're capable of forcing ten years old ten year old girls to have Birth and you're capable of having radical policies on guns, any, any, the establishment of the reality of any one of these things strengthens the, the power of all the other things with voters. And that's why I think the climate is going to actually get much worse for Republicans between now and Election Day.
0: Well, Simon Rosenberg, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
2: Thank you, Ian, as always.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Simon Rosenberg, who's the president and founder of the New Democrat Network, a leading progressive think tank and advocacy organization. Previously, he was a writer and producer at ABC News for five years before working on the Dukakis and Clinton presidential campaigns, where he was a member of the 1992 Clinton War Room. And he has a new report at the New Democrat Network, Red Wave. Hard to see one now. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the Supreme Court's decision to take up a case that could give Republican state legislatures unfettered control over federal election administration and nullify court challenges. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Helen White a counsel at Project Democracy on the elections and voting rights team. She has an article at Just Security. The independent state legislative theory should horrify Supreme Court's originalists. Welcome to Background Briefing, Helen White.
3: Thank you, Ian. Glad to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And the idea that the Supreme Court has taken up this North Carolina case, Moore versus Harper, I think is actually horrifying more people than the Supreme Court conservative majority. I mean, you write in your article, Just Security, that it's upending 200 years of election law. And I suppose it's not going to affect the November elections since the Supreme Court have just taken it up for the next term. But it could impact 2024, could it not?
3: That's correct. And, and of course, the Supreme Court taking this case is a signal um, that it takes this issue seriously. So we may see additional challenges raising this theory related to the 2022 elections. So there, will, we may see more cases about this uh, in the lead up to 2022.
0: So let's talk about this ISL, independent state legislative theory, that is at play in this case, Moore versus Harper.
3: Absolutely. So so. In Moore versus Harper, it is a challenge to the North Carolina uh, redistricting, uh, 2020 redistricting of congressional races. Um, So the legislature in North Carolina redrew the congressional map in response to the results of the 2020 census. And then that map was struck down by the state Supreme Court because it violated the state's constitutional prohibition on partisan gerrymandering. And then A different state court redrew that map. And so the petitioners, the legislature, uh, are asking the Supreme Court to invalidate those actions using the independent state legislature theory.
0: And where does originalism come in, in terms of the the title of your article, Just Security?
3: Sure. So a majority of the Supreme Court's justices are self-proclaimed originalists, which means they believe that the Constitution's meaning is what it was understood by the public to mean at the time that it was ratified. And so that method of constitutional interpretation looks at the text and the original public understanding of the Constitution. And my article at Just Security explains that there is no basis in either the text or the original public understanding of the Constitution for the independent state legislature theory.
0: So, what is the contestation over between the North Carolina congressional map people who have brought this case and who've, who've got the Supreme Court to take it, and this idea of originalism? Where's the contesting evidence in, in this case?
3: Sure. So, so the sort of independent state legislature theories proponents are relying on a provision of the federal constitution called the Elections Clause. And that clause says, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. And so the, the proponents of the independent state legislature theory essentially say, aha, it says legislature, and that must mean that only the legislature is empowered to, you know, within a state, only the legislature is empowered to set the rules for holding uh, federal elections. Um, and, 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 they are relying solely on that sort of isolated piece of text. Whereas if you engage in an honest look at the full text of the Constitution and at the original sort of founding era understanding of what this provision meant, there's just no support for the reading that uh, the, ISL, the independent state legislature theory's proponents offer.
0: In your article, you argue that the newest justice, uh, Amy County Barrett, is key to this, which way this ruling would happen, assuming that the conservative majority of Thomas, the leader, Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, they've already indicated that they're buying into the ISL theory.
3: I think she is, she is key. I, I try not to make predictions about the United States Supreme Court, but I think she is key. And I think, you know, let me explain why. She is the only one of those five most conservative members of the Supreme Court who has not written about this theory. But I also think it's important to note that the the best evidence uh, about why this theory is not legitimate, that there's no legal basis for it, has come very recently after most of those justices have previously endorsed it. So, you know, one would hope that in response to learning, for example, that, um, you know, every state to have held a constitutional convention in the decade after ratifying the federal constitution, every state but one adopted a state constitution that regulated federal elections, which is exactly what the independent state legislature theory says is not allowed. And so if you want to know what the original understanding of the constitution meant, one way to understand that is to look and see what people at the time of the founding we're doing and how that fits with the theory that's being offered. And so one would hope that in response to new evidence and new historical scholarship that these justices say is really important to how they understand the Constitution, that they would update their views. Justice Barrett does not have, has not previously written on this, so she doesn't have to update her views. She just has to develop them. But uh, you know, in response to new information, one would hope they would have a new view on the issue.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Helen White, a counsel at Project Democracy on the Elections and Voting Rights team, and she has an article at Just Security, The Independent State legislator Theory Should Horrify Supreme Court Originalists. So assuming that she goes along w- with the rest of the conservative majority and they adopt this independent state legislator doctrine, what are the consequences for democracy and for the Democrats? Particularly in these Republican-controlled states,
3: the consequences for our democracy are significant and far and, and sweeping for federal elections. So just because this case comes up in a redistricting comp- context does not mean that the sort of effects will only be felt in the drawing of congressional maps. If the legislature prevails, uh, if the North Carolina legislature prevails in its case before the court, it would remove all state constitutional constraints on state legislatures when they regulate federal elections. So that means the last check on partisan gerrymandering in federal elections would be gone. Um, It means that, you know, past future lawsuits to reenfranchise people with felony convictions or to blocks or voter suppression on state constitutional grounds would no longer be available. And it would leave in sort of murky legal territory, previously struck down state laws uh, that had been struck down under state constitutional constraints. Um, And what that means in terms of for voters, for your listeners, for election administrators, it means that we would be operating on a sort of two track system for election administration, because the independent state legislature theory has no effect on state races. So take, for example, a law in Pennsylvania that says, you know, you have to initial, um, just, just right, just in this exact place for, um, your absentee ballot to count. And let's say that, uh, statute was struck down by the state Supreme Court because it was unnecessary for proving the voters' qualifications and therefore was an impermissible uh, infringement on the right to vote under the Pennsylvania uh, state constitution. Well, a ballot missing that initial, if mailed in in an election under the independent state legislature theory, that ballot would be invalid for federal races, right? Because it doesn't have the signature that the law requires, but valid for state races because the law requiring the signature is unconstitutional and therefore not in effect for state races. What happens to that ballot? Is it counted, is it not counted? And so you can imagine that's sort of one small example of the implications of this, of having this two track system and the confusion it could create. And what I am most worried about for our democracy is that in that confusion, you create a lot of opportunities for people to claim voter fraud where none exists or saying that an election has been sort of run in a way where we can't know who won. And so there's a lot of opportunities for people who would like to do harm to our democracy and manipulate, um, you know, vote totals and that kind of thing to, to do that. And it may sort of give politicians more opportunities to try to veto their voters' choices in elections. And that is what I am worried about with this particular theory.
0: So it is extraordinary the, the the ramifications that you just laid out for us, uh, Helen White. And in terms of the federal elections, what kind of mischief could happen? With, with I mean, the Senate races are statewide; they don't they're not necessarily affected by gerrymandering, right?
3: Right. So so. The gerrymandering implications are, of course, only in congressional races, but all everything I just described, that sort of confusion and, um, you know, of course, not having state constitutional constraints creates more opportunities for voter suppression um, and just removes a set of tools from those of us who want to make sure that people can vote and their votes are properly counted. It removes a really important set of set of tools to combat that kind of assault on our democracy. But it's important to remember that we will still have tools to make sure that elections are run in ways that are fair and that respect our voters' choices. Uh, And that's because federal law will still apply to those state legislatures. So they will still have to comply, you know, state regulation of federal elections will still have to comply with federal statutes and the federal constitution. And that should give people some some assurance that this theory would not give state legislatures the power to overturn votes once they've been cast or nullify the results of an election.
0: Well, that's cold comfort, isn't it? <laughs> it's better than a total disaster, but still a pretty gloomy outlook. Um
3: it certainly is extremely concerning. And of course, there's all of the the ways I just described that this creates confusion and so might make sort of specious claims of election fraud and manipulation more possible. But it's it is important to know that this just does not give anybody does not give state legislatures the right to ignore their their voters.
0: Well, choices. Helen White, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
3: Thank you, Ian. I appreciate it.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Helen White, who is a counsel at Project Democracy on the Elections and Voting Rights Team, and she has an article Just Security, The Independent State Legislative Theory Should Horrify Supreme Court Originalists. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate
4: disappeared by heaven help-